Good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. And I just want to reiterate and highlight that event. We're thrilled to be hosting that. That's a huge blessing for us because we have churches in our region as far out as Bozeman, Montana, and Oregon. And we have people from those churches who are coming here for that conference. So one of the biggest obstacles to attending is the travel and that's just not an obstacle for the members and attenders of our church. So that's a huge blessing. If, if you can be there, even for part of it, we'd love to see our whole church take advantage of that. Um, what an opportunity to, to worship together with other churches in our region. So, so do register for that. And registration is free. So you don't really have any reason not to, not to come. It's going to be an awesome time. How many times in the last couple of years have... You heard somebody say or maybe said yourself something like, these are interesting times. Interesting would be one word for it, uncertain times, unstable times. We live in times of moral decay. I think we have to guard on the one hand against thinking that you know, this is something new in the world, like people have never gone through stuff like this before. Sin is not new. It's not like we have hit the bottom that nobody's gotten this far down before. Um, but it's interesting these days. Uh, we live in a time of global conflict and skyrocketing inflation and sexual insanity and gender disorientation and all sorts of other madness and, and mayhem. And one of the most important questions for all people is, what do you make of these times? How, how do you interpret it? What is God up to? What is he doing? Whatever times you happen to live in, by God's providence, one of the things that's always required is to understand the times that you live in and to think clearly about it. And one of the things that's most missing in the world is any kind of clear thinking. And God's word helps us with that because God speaks to us authoritatively. He reveals himself to us. And, and we know that in days of abundance, the unique temptation is to forget God because things are so good, I don't need him. I'm just cruising. And then in days of adversity, the temptation is to believe that God has forgotten you. God has abandoned us. God has lost control. He maybe had his hand on the wheel, and now things are going out of control. What we need as human beings, finite, limited in our understanding, we need revelation from God. We need stability. We need rock-solid truth that we can build our lives on. And what we need is strong assurance that the grace of God will never fail. That God, in fact, is not out of control, that he hasn't lost his grip on reality, but that he is sovereignly and graciously ruling over all things for his glory and for our good. And that's what we have revealed to us in our text this morning in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. So I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me out of our high regard for God and his holy word Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. 
But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Father, we are forever grateful that you have spoken clearly and truly and authoritatively to us through Scripture so that we might know you and be reconciled to you through your son, Jesus, so that we might have a firm foundation under our feet. Truth, your truth, your words, your words of life in our hearts and our minds, illuminated by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you for help, admitting on our own, we are completely incapable. But it's by your mercy and by your grace and according to your good pleasure that you have caused us to see. We have no grounds for boasting. We put no confidence in the flesh. All our hope is in you. Let our souls live and praise you and let your word help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul begins this section in his letter to believers in Rome by raising this question. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Paul's anticipating a question that could arise from a misunderstanding of what he has said up to this point about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and in particular, Israel's widespread rejection of Jesus Christ and the gospel that Paul preaches. We have seen from the end of Romans chapter 9 all the way through the end of Romans 10 last week that Israel attempted to fulfill God's law, which he revealed to them. They attempted to fulfill that as though it was based on their own effort, their own works. They didn't understand all God's law ever called for was humble reliance on God by faith. They thought God gave them a job description, work to do to earn something from God. They missed it. Israel, chapter 10, verse 3, sought to establish their own righteousness to be good enough for God apart from God. We saw in Romans 10, 16 that Israel refuses to believe in or call upon Jesus in spite of hearing the good news. Paul says, have they not heard? They have. They've heard the good news, so it it can't be that. And yet they still refuse to believe. And then at the very end of Romans chapter 10, Israel is stubbornly, disobediently refusing to come to God who has his arms spread 
wide calling to them. So you put all that together. This has been the response of the people of God to God's initiative toward them. Of all the peoples on earth, God picked Israel. He worked through them. He spoke to them. He revealed himself to them, gave them the law, gave them the covenants, gave them the prophets. And by and large, they've all rejected God and his Messiah. So at the time when Paul wrote this letter to Gentile Christians in in Rome, most of the Jews are not trusting in Jesus. And so this is the question. Does Israel's rejection of God mean that God has rejected Israel? Is that what this means? Has God turned his back on them? And, And that's a massively important question for us. If you're thinking, that's a long time ago, different part of the world, a country that I'm not even interested in their history. That, that could be your thought. That, why, why should you care? Well, for two reasons. There, there are two things at stake here in this question. The, the glory of God, which if you're a believer, you, you care a lot about, and your confidence in God, your own assurance about God and his character. So, so first, consider how it would undermine your faith in God if, in fact, it was true that God rejected his people Israel 2,000 years ago. Paul says in, in Romans 9, 4, to Israel belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And if God rejected them, then how could you today ever rest securely in God and his word and his promises to you, right? If his word failed them, then his word might fail you. How can you be sure Romans 8, 39, that that glorious chapter ends with this declaration that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Hold on. But Israel had promises. They had a covenant. Did God reject them? He, He adopted Israel as his son. And if his word failed them, could it fail us? How do we know that that promise is true for us? So that's at stake in this question. That's why Paul is bringing it up. It's another way of asking what he asked back at the beginning of chapter nine. Has the word of God failed? Do do God's promises go out and then God himself fails to deliver on those promises? So, So this matters. But also at stake is the very glory of God, God's character, his reputation. Israel's persistent stubbornness Their rejection of God, this response of the nation of Israel to their God is a common theme. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, this is nothing new, right? It's like every turn. They they had no sooner gotten out of Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. They walked through the Red Sea. They see all the the 10 plagues, the the parting of the sea. Miracles, right? You're thinking, if, if, if I saw stuff like that, how could I not believe the giving of the law on the mountain with fire from heaven. And what, what, what's the first thing that they do? Make us a golden calf. We want a God we can see. Have, have you not been seeing God acting on your behalf? Not good enough. We want a God we can see. We want to worship a golden calf as our God. And so this is what God says to Moses about them in Exodus 32, 9 through 10. I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff Necked people. What a description, huh? Stiff-necked. Now, therefore, let me alone, God says to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, there's a thought. Scrap Israel, the descendants of Abraham. God will just take Moses and start over 
with them. What, what would happen if God completely rejected the entire nation of Israel and started over with Moses? Well, Moses implores God not to destroy Israel. Listen to his reasoning. He, he prays this in Exodus 32, 12. He retells it to Israel what he prayed in Deuteronomy 9, 27 through 28. I want you, want you to hear the, the wording there. Moses prays this to God. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people. He's not arguing with God about their stubbornness or their wickedness or their sin, lest, here's the the logic, lest the land from which you brought us, that's Egypt, lest the Egyptians say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. What's at stake here? If God just wholesale rejects Israel, Moses says, what are the Egyptians gonna say? They're gonna say two things about God. One, he was not strong enough to do it, and two, he was not good enough. That's the charge of the problem of evil. God is not strong enough to fulfill his word. He is not good enough to keep his word. And so the very character and reputation of God is at stake. Among the nations, what will the rest of the world think? Very same scene plays out in Numbers 14 after the 12 spies come back from scoping out the promised land. Joshua and Caleb are the only two faithful spies who come back and say, it's a beautiful land. God has brought us this far. He's gonna give us the land. 10 of the spies, though, bring a bad report and they say, no, the people are giants. We looked to ourselves like grasshoppers next to them. It's awful. We're gonna die run for your lives, and they caused the people so much fear and terror that when Joshua and Caleb said, no, please, trust the Lord, he's gonna give it to us, the people picked up stones to stone them. And so Numbers 14, 11 through 12, the Lord says to Moses, how long, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will disinherit them and I will make you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Same offer. And so Moses intercedes again, stands in the gap on behalf of the nation of Israel, pleads with God for them and he prays, Numbers 14, 13, but then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And, and now it's not just the Egyptians. The, the Egyptians will tell the inhabitants of this land. They, they have heard that you, O oh Lord, are in the midst of this people. Now, if you kill this people as one man, that, that's just boom, wipe them out, all done with Israel. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations, all the nations of the earth who have heard your fame will say, It's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. So no wonder that time and again throughout Scripture when God announces to his people that he's going to forgive them, he's going to pardon them, he's going to rescue them, he reminds them over and over again, it's it's not because you're so deserving. It's for my name's sake. For the sake of my name. For why should my name be despised among the nations? The glory and reputation of God is what's at stake in this question. Has God failed Israel? Another way to take Paul's question in verse one. By rejected, he means, did God's word to them fail? Did God fail them? That's what's at stake here. 
Israel rejecting God is nothing new. But if the gospel of Jesus that Paul's now preaching, the, the new covenant, if the new covenant means God is done with them, he's doing something new, then it just means it was only a matter of time. But in the end, God was not strong enough and he wasn't good enough. So, did God reject Israel? Verse one, by no means, emphatically. Paul denies in the strongest possible terms, absolutely not. That is not what I'm saying. When I'm preaching Christ and the Gentiles are believing and I'm saying that this is God's new covenant, I am not saying God failed in his relationship to Israel. In fact, the, the very way that Paul words the question in verse one, before he even gives his response to it, already suggests that the answer is going to be no. We, we don't quite get this in the ESV. We don't get it at all. The ESV says, has God rejected his people? Which makes it sound like it, it could go either way, yes or no. But actually in the Greek, the wording is more like, it can't be that God has rejected his people, can it? It can't possibly be that, right? It, already telling you, no way. And then he says, no way. And again in verse 2, just so that no one misses it. Now Paul explicitly says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's the main point of Romans 11, 1 through 10, that it is impossible. It is impossible for the sovereign grace of God to fail the people of God. It's impossible for the sovereign grace of God to fail the people of God. God's grace cannot possibly fail to secure forever all those who belong to him. His word will never fail. His promises will never fail. His covenant will never fail. God himself cannot fail. And Paul's not content simply to deny that possibility. He's inspired by the Spirit of God, and so Scripture gives you reasons to support that evidence to undergird your faith so that you can be fully assured when you trust in God and his promises to you because that's what faith is. Faith is relying on God's promises. God wants you to be convinced his promises to you cannot fail. His word to you cannot ever fail. Romans 11, one through 10 is meant to convince you to rest securely in Christ and the sovereign grace of God that he gives you there. And how, how kind of God isn't it just exceedingly kind of God that he would speak to us like this to assure our restless hearts, give us some foundation to stand upon? When it looks like God has lost control, when it looks like things are out of control to the human mind, looks like God has abandoned his people, looks like he's failed in his word, scripture reveals, nope, never the case. God is always sovereignly in control and sovereignly and graciously saving his people. So you can be sure God will never fail you or turn you away if you're united to Christ by faith. So, so how can you be sure of that? How, how does Romans 11 make that case? It, it reveals how God works. That when you see unbelief in the world, that, that's not evidence that God has lost control of the world. When you see widespread rampant sin and rejection of God, it's not evidence of God's failure. God's word, when it goes out, as Romans 10 just told us, it always has one of two effects. His word either graciously and sovereignly saves people or it justly hardens them. And both are God-given intents for his word. God's word doing what God sent it out to do. It's never a matter of God's word failing. 
That's Paul's answer here in the text. Those two things. God graciously chooses and keeps his people through his word. God justly hardens those who are not his people. His word always has one of those two effects. Look at those in turn. God graciously chooses and keeps his people. Throughout this passage, Paul is underscoring this through repetition. He says it over and over with a bunch of different words and phrases, varied vocabulary, so that nobody misses it. This is central. This is who God is. This is his character. You can count on this. God sovereignly chooses to save people who could never earn it or deserve it. And to choose them is the very opposite of rejecting him. So don't ever think God has failed or rejected his people. That's how verse 2 puts it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There are two verbs there, and they're set in direct contrast. To reject and to foreknow. Those are opposite things. God has not rejected them. He has foreknown them. And to foreknow is more than just he happens to know in advance what they're going to do. The word foreknow, as he uses it here, and he used it back in Romans 8, has the sense of foreordain, to, to choose in advance. It, it's active. It's not just God happens to know what's going to turn out in the end. Paul is saying God has not rejected his people. He has selected his people. And if he selected them, then by definition, he, he could not have rejected them. That's not what he does. He, he graciously chooses them. And then Paul points to the story of Elijah as proof that God is able to protect his people, to keep them and preserve them, even when it looks to the eyes of the flesh like God has abandoned them and all hope is lost. In in 1 Kings 18, are you familiar with that story? Where Elijah challenges the the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They're gonna offer sacrifices and see, is is the Lord God or is Baal? Which God will answer in fire and consume the sacrifice. And so Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, in front of King Ahab, the king of Israel, and all the nation of Israel is there to observe. And the false god, Baal, obviously fails to answer, doesn't come through, but the Lord God of Israel answers Elijah, consumes the sacrifice, fire falls from heaven, and proves the Lord alone is God, which is incredible. And then what happens is Elijah says, gather up those 450 false prophets, and Elijah executes them. So things are looking pretty good, right? That's a pretty big win. And then word gets to Queen Jezebel, and she says, somebody go tell Elijah he is sentenced to death. And so Elijah runs for his life. He flees in fear in 1 Kings 19, and he cries out to God. He's hiding in a cave. And he cries out to God, as Paul says in Romans 11, against Israel. His lament is against the very people who are supposed to know God and trust God. And what's his charge against them? The people of Israel, this is 1 Kings 19.10, Paul's quoting this in Romans 11, the, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. They talk about hopeless. If you think these are interesting days, maybe even dark days we're living in now, how would you feel if you were in Elijah's shoes? This is open war against God, hostile rebellion, tearing down his altars, killing his prophets, demolishing 
and now seeking to kill Elijah. And, and here's the part Paul wants you to see. Look at Romans 11, verse 4. But what is God's reply? He, he doesn't deny that that's all true. That, that's, that's true. Israel was doing all that. But what's God's reply? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have kept. I have kept for myself. Elijah, this is not about you. It's not even up to you. This is about me, my word, and my sovereign grace, and my ability to preserve by my strong arm for myself, my worshipers, who don't worship Baal, but they worship me. I have kept for myself because God sovereignly selects and providentially provides for his people and protects them, that's why there are 7,000 who still worship God and apparently of whom Elijah was oblivious. God is up to more than Elijah even knew in his own day. And, and this reality of God's remnant functions so powerfully in Paul's own life when he's living in the first century, preaching the gospel, and the nation of Israel is mostly rejecting what he and the other apostles have to say about Jesus Christ. Paul is so convinced of God's purpose, God can and God will preserve his own people sovereignly by his grace, that his very first answer to the question, has God rejected his people? By no means. What's the first evidence? Exhibit A that he presents. Verse one. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's exhibit A, I believe. And somebody might say, yeah, but Paul, you're just one guy. And he says, yes, but God keeps for himself a remnant in every age. He always has, he always will. Loved ones, you can rest assured that God is preserving by his grace, a remnant. Now, just as he has always done, he did it in the wilderness. He kept Joshua and Caleb. All the unbelieving Israelites died in the wilderness and didn't get to go into the promised land because of their unbelief, but Joshua and Caleb did because they trusted in the Lord and God preserved a remnant. He did it in Israel. He preserved Elijah and 7,000 others. He did it in the first century. He kept Paul and other Jews. He's done it in countless other generations and you can be sure that God is doing that today. How do you know? You believe, don't you? And you're hardly alone. You have no reason to be fearful and timid, but to be confident in the sovereign grace of God who keeps for himself. That's sovereign grace. Paul concludes in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Look at those words, chosen by grace. And Paul just pauses here to make sure no, nobody misses what he just said. The only reason God chooses to show mercy to those to whom he shows mercy is grace. That question comes up, maybe you've thought that yourself, why, why did God save me? The only reason scripture ever gives to that question why is because it pleased him to. And if you insist on knowing, but, but what was it about me? The answer is always nothing. Nothing. You were not more special. You were not more deserving. You were not more intelligent. You were not more spiritually inclined. You were not more virtuous 
You are not more aligned with the right political party. Nothing about you caused you to stand out among all the people of the earth so that God would set his favor upon you. The only basis for his choice is grace. Here's how Paul says in verse 6. If it's by grace that you were chosen, then it's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If it depended on you, it would not be grace by definition. If it's grace, it has to be freely given. If it's grace, it has to be sovereign or it's not grace. And so any insistence, but don't we contribute something? Don't we do something? Is an insistence that God not save us graciously, but based on some merit in us. It will either be free, sovereign grace, or it is not grace at all. And then in verse 7, one more way Paul makes this point clear. God graciously, freely, sovereignly chooses and saves and keeps his people. One more time in verse 7, he speaks of the elect. The elect obtained it. That is, obtained right standing with God. And this is yet another way Paul's underscoring, no, God does not fail his people. No, he does not reject his people. He elects his people. He chooses them. He saves them. And what's interesting is that in the Greek, Paul doesn't actually say the elect obtained it. He, he could have. There's a way in Greek he could very clearly say the elect obtained it, which would make them the subject doing the action. The elect are obtaining something. But he doesn't. He says the election obtained it. What's the difference? Well, the first way would make the elect themselves the, the doers of the obtaining. But by saying the election obtained it, he's putting the spotlight on God who did the electing. God obtained it for them. They have it. They enjoy it. They, they have right standing with God because God set his favor on them. It's because of God. So God, does he ever fail? To fulfill his word? Do his promises ever come back void? No, it's exactly the opposite. God foreknows his people. God chooses them by grace. God keeps them for himself, and he obtains for them the very righteousness they could never obtain on their own. And yet the fact remains that many, if not most of Israel in Paul's day, did reject the Messiah. So what do we do with that? Look at verses 7 through 10. Paul writes, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. And then he quotes from the law and the prophets and the writings, three passages of Scripture to underscore this hardening work of God. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here Paul explains that Israel's rejection of God is not evidence of God's rejection or failure, but it's evidence of Israel's failure and God's justice. That's important. Israel's rejection of God is not evidence of God's failure. It's evidence of Israel's failure and God's just judgment. God justly hardens those who are 
not his people. And Paul said this in the beginning of Romans 9, not all Israelites ethnically belong to Israel. It's not a matter of physical descent. Verse 7, here in Romans 11, Paul says, Israel failed. Israel failed. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Well, what was Israel seeking? Go back to Romans 9, 31 through 32. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They were seeking right standing with God, but they didn't succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And so they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's what they were seeking. That's what they failed to obtain, righteousness, right standing with God. According to Romans 10.3, Israel was seeking to establish their own righteousness. Not the righteousness of God. Paul says they refused to submit to that, but they sought to establish their own, to be good enough on their own. This is crucial. Israel failed to obtain righteousness because they failed to submit to God and rely on God as he had revealed himself. That's describing what happened from human perspective, right? Israel failing Israel not submitting to God. And yet we could talk about it from God's perspective, which is what Paul is interested in doing here to assure you God has not lost control. His word has one of two effects. It saves those he chooses and it hardens the rest. The rest were hardened, Paul says. And I understand this to be a judicial hardening, a judgment of God, a just and fitting punishment Of course, there will be a final judgment at the end, but this is important for us to understand today. If you just think judgment only comes at the end of history, like people can just do whatever they want, live their entire lives in sin, and not experience any of the judgment of God now, judgment is just purely a future thing, then you're mistaken. God manifests his judgment in history, in time and space. And he does that through this hardening work. He hands people over to their sin. In verse nine, Paul's quoting this prayer from David in Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is one of the most, like top two or three most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted in relation to Jesus. It's got familiar lines in it that are prophetic about the suffering of the Messiah. Lines like, they hated me without cause, or zeal for your house has consumed me, or for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That comes from Psalm 69 quoted all over the place. In Romans 11, Paul cites a section of the psalm where David prays and asks God to punish those who hated him without cause. They hated me without cause. They persecuted me. They came after me. And at the end of the psalm, David prays, God, do something about it. And that's the part Paul quotes here. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. A retribution is a just penalty. It's a punishment that fits the crime. When God hardens people, he hardens people who are morally responsible for their own reaction to God, their own rejection of God. And what he does when he hardens them is he makes them spiritually numb, gives them a spirit of stupor. He makes them blind and deaf. And he entraps them in the very blessings that he's poured out on them. Three times in Romans 1, Paul says that God gave them up, handed them over to their own filthy lusts and their dishonorable passions and their debased minds. God just hands people over. You want to think and live independently of me? Here you go. That is God's judgment. When you see people living in the insanity of sin, it's not just, oh man, judgment is coming for them at the end. You can have some pity on them now. They are already living in that judgment. What a miserable 
condition to be in. And those who fail to honor God, God gives them over to, Romans 1.21 says, futility in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. That's God's hardening work, his, his judgment on them. They enjoy God's gifts without thanking him, so he causes them to be trapped in their own, these, these blessings. Their, their table becomes the snare. What is their table? Blessings God has poured out, and all the kindness of God that they use without thanking God just is heaped up as evidence against them. And later in this chapter, Paul speaks of unbelieving Israelites, verse 20, when he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. So, so it's a judgment. When God hardens those who rebel against him, he's not being unfaithful to his promise. It's not his word failing. It's not God acting contrary to his covenant. It's not undermining his mercy. It's actually consistent with his word and his warning of what will happen to those who refuse to trust in him. What we have to be careful to not think is something like imagining Israel clamoring to get to God. They're all trying, they just, they love God, they want to get to God, they want to be right with God, they're trying to get through the door, and God is just slamming the door in some people's faces. Nope, not you. Don't like that guy, not him. That's not what's going on. Trying to establish your own righteousness apart from God rather than relying on God is, to be clear, a rejection of God. If you, if, if you insist, I, I can be right with God myself, I don't need him, I don't want to rely on him, I want to do it myself, then you're saying, I don't need him. I don't want him. That is a rejection of God. And you may be tempted to think it's unfair that God hardens some while he has mercy on others, but fairness would be what? Fair or just would be for God to leave all of us in our sin. That would be justice, for God to give every one of us what we deserve. For grace to be grace, it must be undeserved, unearned. If you insist on fairness, that everyone gets what he or she deserves, then you're insisting that God save no one. That is not a case I want to make before God. Oh God, give them what they deserve. How, how would that go applied to me? But does that mean God shows partiality? Favoritism? Bias? Scripture says this numerous places, Romans 2, Galatians 2, Ephesians 6, Acts 10, God shows no partiality in, in no uncertain terms, right? God shows no partiality. But in every place that Scripture says that, the point is God does not set his favor on you because of some characteristic in you that he likes more than characteristics in other people. That's what it means when it says he shows no partiality. But Scripture is also clear, God does differentiate. He, he does show favor to some, and wrath to others. He does. He has mercy on whomever he wills to have mercy, and he hardens whomever he wills. And those who, to whom God graciously chooses to reveal himself, we, we just know we're, it's not because we were better, or else grace would not be grace. And I know that for some of you, when you hear this, that God's word has a hardening effect on some, I, I know that the very first thought that goes through your mind is, what if I'm one of those? What if I'm one of the hard ones? And loved ones, let me assure you that the reality of God's hardening work 
is not revealed here in Scripture so that you can go off and fear that you might be one of the ones hardened by the word. This is not why God speaks it here. Paul speaks it here to assure you everything is going according to God's plan. He has not lost control. His word is not failing. He is sovereignly ruling over everything, saving his people and hardening those who are not trusting in him. So you don't have to worry and wring your hands. This is revealed to assure you of that. So you can be sure that God will not fail you. And, and if that's you, if you tend to think that way, like you hear about this and you think, ah, oh, I'm probably one of those not chosen. Let, let me ask you this. Why would you assume that? Why would you assume you would be one of the hard-hearted ones? Do you think your sin is too great for God to forgive? Do you think your heart is too hard for God to overcome? Do you think you're too undeserving of his favor? Did you hear what scripture says? Let me read it again, verses five and six. There is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it's by grace, it no long, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So there should be no thought in your mind, my sin is too great, my heart is too hard, I'm too far gone, there's no hope for me. It's grace, it doesn't depend on you. So that thought should not be in your mind. And there's nothing about you, who you are, what you've done that could disqualify you from that saving grace of God. In fact, before Paul wrote the, apostle to the, uh, the uh, epistle to the Romans, Remember who he was? Saul, the hard-hearted, insolent opponent and persecutor of the church. Think about the one who penned these words. He can say, I was one of those, hardened, blind, deaf, stumbling around in my stupor, persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, and he had mercy on me. And so he says in 1 Timothy 1.16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, the worst sinner, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So who do you think you are to reject the mercy of God? That's on you. If you hear the word and you reject it, that's on you. God has given us incredible assurances in his word that his promises will never fail. I'm grateful for this passage. I'm grateful that God speaks to us here. And we know that the, the greatest reason, the, the greatest assurance that we have that God will never, ever reject, turn away any who come to him through Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ himself, who was the only perfectly righteous human ever to live was rejected. Wrap your mind around that. Has God's word failed undeserving people? No. And yet the righteous one, when he hung on the cross bearing your sin and your guilt, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken. He was rejected. He was cut off and he was cut off for you. 
so that you need not ever fear that God would ever do that to you. He's paid it all. He suffered it all. He's endured it all for you. And God raised him from the dead, proving that God did not abandon him forever. He did not leave him to decay in the dirt forever. He raised him up and appointed him the king of the world. And now as the resurrected king of heaven and earth, he gives resurrection life to all who call on him. And so all the promises in Romans 10 are true. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is that resurrected king, you will be saved. That's what God says to you. And so as scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Trust in him and be reconciled to God by sovereign grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how could it be that it would please you to so display the greatness and the beauty and the glory of your grace by pardoning sinners not because of anything in us or about us. What a comfort, what security, what hope that gives us. And may that function in us to humble us, to embolden us, to help us when our faith is weak, to abandon all hope in self and to look to Christ and Christ alone. Oh God, how gracious and kind you've been to us. And God, would you give us, make the saints of Emmaus Road Church deeply joyful and compassionate people living in a fallen world. That when we see people around us living in sin, there would be no deep-seated bitterness in our hearts toward them, but just compassion toward people who are stumbling around in their own blindness and sin. And we just, we would know that would be us if not for your grace. Open their eyes. Cause them to see. Save sinners for your glory. Fill this world with worshipers. That's your plan. It's your purpose. No matter how things look to our eyes today, we know you are doing that for the glory of your name and your eternal praise. And so may it be so. Lord Jesus, be exalted, we pray. Amen.